0: Good afternoon. Welcome to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be your host for the next hour. I'm glad you have time to take a little bit of time with me and spend part of your busy afternoon. Oh, maybe a little bit of education, a little entertainment, a little humor sometimes. I'm not sure. This has been a really busy year for me with between the crazy virus thing, and then the way they extended tax season out, and then they, they still left it short. In other words, they extended the deadline from April to July, but they didn't extend the extended deadline. So the people who got extensions in July still only go till October. So October 15 is the final day for filing your 2019 tax on time if you did an extension. I do have a feeling that anybody who didn't get an extension but still files pretty soon, my guess is that they probably end up being kind of, i don't quote me on this, my guess is that they're going to end up being fairly lenient on anybody who gets a late payment penalty or a late filing penalty, and you ask them to forgive that penalty, I just have a feeling with the whole way this year of 2020 has been crazy. I think they're going to end up excusing quite a few penalties. I mean, I can't guarantee that. I never guarantee it, but I just got another letter today from a, an email today from a client who had a problem a year or so ago and decided to, they decided to file a business as a partnership instead of as an individual LLC on their tax return, which is totally legal. But They decided to do it after the deadline for a partnership return, which is March 15, the deadline had already passed. So when we sent in this partnership tax return with the husband and wife as the two partners, which is totally legal, it was a late tax return. And we sent it in in September and I knew it was going to be late. That partnership then got a letter billing them for late filing of a partnership, which is about $3,000 when you're six months late with two partners. Bottom line is they have an automatic penalty removal rule, and the letter I saw today actually mentions because it's your first year. That is a major thing for a lot of people. Anybody who started a partnership and forgot to file the extension on time, they forgive the partnership. Well, they forgive partnership penalties anyway if all the partners file on time, but... That's a whole other issue. I don't want to get too complicated. All I can tell you is there's quite a few ways for IRS penalties to get removed. And uh, it's not, uh, honestly, it's just because I've been doing this for 40 years. I just, I've seen it all. I've tried here and there. I've seen the ones that do get it approved. I've seen the ones that don't. uh, And so it's just a matter of all the experience. I can't believe I said that. Forty years—it's amazing. Kind of reminds me of the story where, whenever I get into a situation where I need to bill a client, which is daily, uh, I, it's a it's a story of Pablo Picasso sitting in the French—I'll call it the Spanish—cafe, and the woman next to him at the next table says, "Oh." Would you draw me would you draw me a picture of uh, would you draw me a portrait and, and he says sure so he takes his paper and his pencil and does a picasso style portrait where you know both eyes are on the same side of the nose and all that and he hands it to her and she says well what do I owe you and he says uh 50,000 what do they use oh euros he says 50,000 euros she says that only took you 2 minutes says, no, ma'am, that took me 50 years. You get it? That's where, uh, you know, I'm at the point, uh, 40 years experience doing a lot of income taxes. I don't purport to be an expert at all the things that CPAs can specialize in, but I've done a lot of taxes, and I'm very familiar with what people need to look out for, what they can deduct, uh, what they have to report, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm just not shy anymore when it's time for, when it's billing time. I mean, I'm not the most, I'm not the most high priced CPA in town. I know that for a fact, but I'm also not the lowest. And uh, every time if you call me for one of those free consultations, uh, you know, you're getting 40 years of experience uh, when we talk. In fact, I just had a client today that we set up a time because they're clients who are considering selling a rental property at a pretty big gain. I sat there and talked with them for a while before I came over here. And in a half hour, I was able to give them the advice that, you know, it would take years for someone to learn or a lot of hours to study. And even if they studied this in a, in an IRS booklet or a tax, a tax class or anything like that, there's just no substitute for the experience that people have. So if you're, like if you're looking to do, put an addition on your house or add a bathroom or something, you can find a licensed contractor who's 25 years old or one that's 55 years old. The 25-year-old may have some great ideas, but he may not have the experience to know things like how much trouble is, are you going to have, how much is the permit going to cost with the city, what's the inspector going to ask when he comes over, it's that experience. It's that guy that's been doing it for 30 years versus the brand new guy. And it's not saying the job in the end is better, but it's saying that you're going to pay for that experience and you're probably going to remove a lot of the doubt and the iffiness of finding a new guy to help you. I always look for the experience over the some of the practical knowledge, but then again, a licensed CPA and a licensed contractor, they all pass the same tests and they all have the same continuing education requirements. So there are certain certifications that require different uh, different tests and different education. But for the basic thing like a CPA, I don't know, it's just, I, I don't know how I got off on all this tangent. I was just thinking of the fact that with uh, the Picasso spending two minutes, the picture's worth a lot more than... Two minutes of clock time on an average painter is what I was trying to convey with that little joke. And I've been known to make mistakes. I'm not perfect. But the main thing is I've seen almost everything, and I'm also experienced enough to know when I hear something I don't want to take on that I can say, you know what, I'm not really the best guy for you on that. You should try so-and-so or, you know, sometimes I'll refer them to someone that I happen to know is real good at a certain topic. There's just some topics I'm not an expert at, and I'm, I'm the first to admit it if it comes up. I can't, uh, you can be some things, what, what is it, you can fool all the people all the time and all that, or some of the time. So you can't be everybody's best friend, and you can't be everybody's expert in all fields. But as long as you know which ex- which fields you are good at and which ones you aren't, then you can, act accordingly and save everybody a lot of grief because you can just, you know, send them to the right person. Sometimes they actually need a licensed attorney, and I have to tell them I'm not an attorney. But some people, I'm the only professional they really know, so they always ask me for referrals, and so I try to refer, you know, the right person when I can, which is, you know, I can usually do that. I normally know who the right person is. At least I can point him in the right direction. So I do see now that the air quality today is unhealthy. And uh, it looks that way outside. Um, hopefully you're able to stay in and stay in with the air conditioning and all that. So I was just kind of looking around to see if I can find any local news cuz i haven't printed anything today that's local i've been i've been too busy i've been nonstop today's the day that i actually play tennis in the morning i have a couple days a week like that so once i do that i'm not getting to work early so i'm going to be kind of behind the eight gun behind the eight ball every uh every day that i play tennis in the morning so i'm just going to hit a few highlights here of some Since it's business buzz, we'll look at the Chico ER. And since coronavirus affects business, I think it qualifies as business news. After stubborn plateau, California's averages of cases and deaths hit new lows. Well, the deaths have been low for a long time. And I guess now the cases even are going down. Uh, I've talked before on Business Buzz about cases versus deaths. I just read today that it sounds like some some report came out that said nine out of 10 COVID positive people are not contagious, which is pretty amazing that we shut down the world's economy for something that's not even contagious.
1: Uh,
0: Pretty amazing. If you've noticed, I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, England and Australia are really in bad ways as far as the lockdown and people getting arrested for like commenting on it. So Hopefully they won't won't get me because I'm commenting. I'm commenting. Uh, Grizzly Dome still burning but has not crossed the Feather, Feather River Canyon. That's good news. So hopefully the fires are slowing down. That's not good at all. And... Well, that's about it for local news. I honestly, I don't know what's going on. I see a lot of signs in people's yards for who to vote for. I honestly need to do a little more research on these local. Well, my problem is where I actually live for my voting is not in the city. So even though I'm in the city 90% of my day and my job is in the city and I'm dealing with the city all day long and I'm following their rules at my office the fact that i don't live in the city means i don't even get to vote for city council so i'm not sure i'm not sure how good that is I'm, it always kind of bugs me that uh, i have to do business in chico of course they they would say well you choose to do business in chico it's like yeah technically i do but the fact that i am doing business in chico should give me at least something of a chance to vote for city council but i guess not I guess if I can't vote for him, I need to run for him. I'd have to look up whether you have to live within the city limits to be a city council person. Maybe you do. I don't know. Honestly, I don't really care. I don't care about too much these days. You know, I'm at that age where I've been doing this a long time. I enjoy my work. I'm not planning on retiring right away. And as long as I can stay at a desk job and stay healthy, why not? keep going. I enjoy it. And uh, it's always nice to have the current income to kind of keep you rolling. I guess today uh, we're going to come up on that first break. I brought something along just for fun. Uh, I get my prospectuses from some IRA investment stuff. I still get them by mail. They beg me all the time to go paperless so they don't have to mail these to me. But you know what? I really don't care. I like getting them in the mail. And so what I've got is it's called the Prudential Series Fund Semiannual Report. It's got all these different funds. But what I think's interesting is they contain the balance sheets of what's in these funds. And I just almost laugh because everything I've read says that most of these most of these entities are number one, either not profitable. Or number two, bankrupt. And uh, this is what your, if you have a 401k and a bunch of different diversified funds, uh, this is the kind of thing you own. Um, I mean, I don't know which of these, I don't know which of these uh, companies necessarily are good, bad, uh, doing well, not doing well, but just looking at the list, like uh, ExxonMobil, Number of shares value. Illinois Toolworks. Ooh, that sounds like a good all American company. They probably they probably moved everything to China anyway 30 years ago. But they still call themselves Illinois Toolworks. Oh, Las Vegas Sands. That must be a wonderful investment, guys. They've shut down the casinos for six months. You still like your you still like your shares in Las Vegas Sands in your retirement account? Wow. Scary stuff. Oh, Merck. Merck and Company, well, at least up until the Trump administration, I know they were doing well, but I'm not so sure now. Uh, Microsoft's good Uh, now that they're in the vaccine business. Oh, whoops. Excuse me. Sorry about that. Uh, Let me see. Pfizer. Pfizer. Qualcomm. Raytheon. Oh, Sherwin-Williams Company. Well, that's a... That's a good all American company. Well, we're going to take a break. I got some more news and uh, entertainment coming up for you. I'm Harold Littlejohn. Stay tuned to Business Buzz.
1: the drop is face jumping off the clouds.
0: That's right, he's
1: right above Mount Shasta. Awesome, way to stick that landing, Bob. Now he's shredding it up on a snowboard. Wahoo! Look out, here he comes. Woo, that was cool and refreshing. It should be, it's going to be Mount Shasta Spring Water in 500 years. Have it delivered right to your home or office by calling 1-800-922-6227. Pure and simple, naturally the best. Mount Shasta Spring Water.
0: Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Thanks for spending part of your afternoon with me. I, I appreciate that. So I was going a little further into the rabbit hole of the, see this is the government income portfolio. Oh, this stuff sounds so safe. Okay, so the one I was looking at before with those ones I was reading off, that was the uh, global portfolio. And common stocks, Canada, China, Denmark, all kinds of about, uh, they got about 30 different countries represented in their common stock investments. But here's the interesting page. Um, Net investment income or loss. So I'm an accountant, so CPAs are supposed to read these kind of statements all the time. Honestly, I choose to do income tax a lot more than I do regular bookkeeping and accounting, which I kind of learned, as they say, I cut my teeth on it when I was younger, but I had to, to become a CPA. Nowadays, becoming a CPA is a lot different than when I became a CPA, very much different in the experience category. I won't go into it because I'm not an expert at it, but I do know that you no longer even have to work for another CPA to become a CPA, which to me is pretty weird. But anyway, that's, you know, this is the new world. So here's the interesting part of this global portfolio, which is something, you know, you might own this. It's part of Prudential Securities. I own a little bit of it, not a whole lot. You know me. Based on what I've told you, I don't balance my portfolio with 95, uh, with 70% stocks and 30% bonds. Um, Mine's way different than that. And if you've been listening to Business Buzz at all, you know what I'm into. Okay, so statement of operations, six months ended June 30th, 2020. Whoops, that includes the period of COVID from March to June. Now, remember that this only includes, I would say, two and a half months of virus problems. The next six months are going to be July 1 through December. Look out, that's going to have six months of virus problems, assuming the virus problems aren't going to go away right away. Anyway, here we go. Six months ended June 30th. Call your broker and ask him, Hey, do I have some of this global portfolio? Now this is not investment advice and I don't want to tell you whether to liquidate it, buy it or hold it. I'm not going to say what to do. I'm just going to report some facts. Net investment income. And that would be like uh, dividends, uh, Interest uh, securities lending they they lend out securities and get like a margin interest on stuff it's uh, they have all kinds of tricks but bottom line is here's what happens in your typical global portfolio and this is an example total income ten million uh, just a little under eleven million dollars expenses management fees four point two mil that's where I want to be. Oh, accounting fees, one hundred and fifty-six thousand. Eh, that's too much work for one hundred and fifty-six grand. I'd rather be a management guy, making four point two mil. That's the one I want to be. Uh, audit fee. Well, they have to have auditors do the do these statements. Trustees fees. I don't know what that's all about. Legal fees and expenses. Yeah, I can imagine what that might be when, when your, when you're, uh, when your investors lose a bunch of money. Oh, miscellaneous, twenty-two grand. I don't put those on tax returns I prepare. Not that big of a miscellaneous. Okay. So we come down to net expenses of 4.3 mil. So we have net investment income of 6.4 million. Doesn't that sound great, everybody? Well, guess what comes after that? What comes after that is net realized gain or loss on, tra- on investment transactions. In other words, they did some selling and some foreign currency transactions. And guess what? That made $32 million bucks in six months. So guess what? As of right now, we're at plus 26 mil. These guys must be geniuses. Wait, wait, wait. There's one more line I have to get to. It's called Net Change in Unrealized Appreciation. Well, guess what? The appreciation is a negative number, which means it's depreciation. Net change in unrealized appreciation or depreciation, which is the credit number, the negative number, on investments. $115 million and 68000 on foreign currencies. So our bottom line for our wonderful global portfolio, this is not investment advice. I'm not a stockbroker. I couldn't sell these if I wanted. I wouldn't sell these if I wanted. So here we go. Leading up to that section, we were at plus 38 million for the six months and we were looking good, but nope. The depreciation in the net change in the unrealized uh, depreciation of in their investments was a hundred and fifteen million dollars in six months. That puts the bottom line: we got six million in investment income, thirty-two million in realized gain on investment transactions, and we got a hundred and fifteen million in stupid investments that went way down in value. Why don't we just call? Let's let's tear let's call the line stupid investments, $115 million negative. So the net decrease in net assets resulting from operations for the six-month period in the global portfolio is negative $76 million. Now, this, this is such a great example of what I've been saying. Now, on Business Buzz, I didn't know a year ago that there would be a virus hoax that would shut down the world economy. I had no idea. Nobody told me. I'm not friends with any of those insiders. But I did say that it's very risky having your money in these funds that you honestly normally probably don't even know what they're investing in. Well, like I say, if you own any of these funds in your IRA or in your regular money, it's called non-qualified money, Uh, Just take a look at the, uh, what do they call it? The semi-annual report. It came out June 30th. And it's uh, it's fascinating. I mean, can you imagine losses that staggering in six months and people are leaving their money in this stuff? I'm, I'm flipping around to see what else I can find. These things are crazy. Oh, here's a managed portfolio. Let's see how well they did in this one. See if I can find a nice, succinct statement. The problem with these things is unless you see a real good laid out statement, uh, you know, unless you really look at it, it's it's kind of hard to read these things. And I'm a I'm a CPA and it's not easy for me to read them. Um, anyway, I, I won't spend too much more time on this because I honestly, I didn't like flag a bunch of pages. I just had to bring this thing in. I mean, come on, give me a break. Some of these stocks have got to be worthless by now. I mean, I know people who I remember reading about. You ever heard of a company called Gannett? They're the ones who print USA Today and put them at your hotel room door because no one buys it, no one reads it, but they they still hand them out at hotels. That stock back in like 20 years ago was, I don't know, something like $60 a share. I don't know the numbers, but it was called Gannett. I know they were the publisher of like Oakland Tribune and a lot of city newspapers. That stock went, I think, down from like sixty dollars to like a dollar a share, and it's probably went worthless by now. I'm really not sure. This is not investment advice. I'm just telling you what I think, and what I uh, what I listen to. Uh, I'm going to look it up right now just to check. But the bottom line is, you know, who would have thought 20 years ago that newspapers would all die? Who would have thought? four months ago that uh, hotels and restaurants would be shut down for months for, for no reason, basically. I mean, who, who would have thought? I never would have thought. And, uh, okay, Gannett company. I'm, I'm looking that one up just cause I remember, Oh God, it's a dollar 34 per share. Oh, Oh, wouldn't you love to be a Gannett grandkid? who inherited, you know, 500,000 shares when it was worth... Okay, this is some kind of reorganized stock. Yeah, okay. Gannett Media Corporation. I went to the max chart, and it only goes back to 2014. Huh. I'm taking a break, kind of like the people who own Gannett. I'll be right back on Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn. Stay tuned. When 10,000 religious
1: people representing all religions of the world went to the prayer conference, tell me why every witch and shaman and every kind of foolish, weird religious
0: practice is welcome to its own but arms. David Hawking shares more about what happens when iniquity is great. This week on Hope for Today.
1: Tune in for Hope for Today weekdays at 8 a.m. here on KKXX. Who is God? This is Ken Ham, a publisher of the award-winning family magazine called Answers. According to a recent survey, barely half of Americans would define God with a biblical definition. Nearly half believe Jesus sinned while on earth, and over half see the Holy Spirit as a symbol. There are so many false gods and wrong beliefs in our culture. How do we decide what's true? Who is God? Well, to know who God is, we must read his written revelation of himself to us. The Bible is the only sure way of knowing who God is and what he's like. Anything else is just speculation. Sadly, many people have rejected God's word as the authority. To point them towards the biblical God, we must first show them the Bible's true. But that's for tomorrow. Discover biblical truth and hundreds of resources to encourage and equip you at AnswersRadio.com. And find out about our streaming platform, Answers TV, at AnswersRadio.com. A social distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non physical ways to say hello. Wave, wink, use sign language, salute, smile, give the peace sign, throw up an air high five, do jazz hands. Remember, Stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council.
0: Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn CPA. Thanks for spending part of your afternoon with me. I appreciate that. I have a busy afternoon every day. I'm afraid it's just uh, that time of year. Anytime between about February and October 15 is a busy time for a for a CPA in Chico. I'm just going to get rid of this Gannett here on my screen, but I just wanted to mention that. Okay, this thing was this thing dove way down from. A long time ago, it was a large company. I don't know what this one called. It's called GCI is the symbol. It's Gannett Media Corp. But the sad news here is that in the longest chart I can get, because they must have reorganized and called it this, in 2014, that darn stock was worth about 24 bucks a share. A short six years later, it's dollar $1.34. Hmm. Well, hopefully, a uh, global portfolio didn't own any of that junk. That's total junk. I mean, if you try to look, have you ever tried to look up articles on a major newspaper's website? New York Times, San Francisco Chronicle, even Chico ER. Once you've read two or three articles, they make you subscribe. And, it, you know, it's only a couple dollars a month. But honestly, what do you get from those newspapers, number one, that's true? And number two, that you can't get somewhere else. And they have a terrible business model for the 21st century. And uh, stock prices like that Gannett thing really show it. So anybody holding that kind of junk is, you know, it's almost like they deserve to lose their money. But the problem is most people have all these funds and the funds are diversified, so they don't make that much. But at least they don't lose that much. And I think that's kind of the theory these days. All these big funds, they... uh you know, if they're diversified enough, they'll they'll go down some, but not they won't go down 100%. But I was listening to another speaker the other day on, it was on probably on a YouTube I was watching, but it mentioned what I had said before. In 1929, the stock market had a crash, but it didn't crash right away. It took about three, almost three years to hit the low. And I believe the low was pretty much a 90% loss. And then it took, the real bad news for that is it took something like 30 years after that to climb back to where it had been in 1929. So you have a three-year period where it, where it completely drops like a rock, but it takes 25 or 30 years for it to come back to where it was. So, I mean, could you imagine right now with the Dow in the high 20s, a 90% drop would take it to 3,000? you'd probably have to wait 30 years for it to get back to where it was before. So don't be, uh, and not, you know, not investment advice. I'm a CPA, but I'm not a financial advisor. You have to do your own research and your own due diligence, as they say. But can you afford to lose 90% of your retirement money in case there's one of those crashes that happen every 90 years or so? Uh, I, I don't think you can afford to lose that much. I know I can't. So I'm sitting here thinking, well, you know, business buzz listeners, they've heard all my stuff about gold and silver. They don't need to hear that every week. So I was thinking about where does our money go? Why are we broke? We've got the richest country in the world. We have, uh, this country has all the minerals, all the silver, all the gold, a lot of gold, not all of it. Why are we broke? So I'm thinking, well, you know what? I think over the last at least 100 years, probably 200, I think- I think the rich people have j- basically stolen all the money. So I got to thinking and I was looking up a little research and I just thought of a couple good topics. One of them would be foreign aid. When we as a kind benef- benefactor type country dole out billions of dollars a year in foreign aid, who does it really go to and what does it really do? And I found an article, it's actually a, uh, economic, uh, pay, uh, like a dissertation, like a paper, they call it, I think. And it's called elite capture of foreign aid evidence from offshore bank accounts. And it's from Jorgen Jule Anderson from the Norwegian business school, Niels Johansson from university of Copenhagen and Bob Rikers from the world bank. So this is definitely a European based uh, paper. And, uh, I'll just read a little bit of a couple different parts of this. I've read, I I only printed a few pages. I mean, the whole thing's like 50 pages long. But it starts out, introduction, the effectiveness of foreign aid remains controversial. A large literature studies how aid is spent, how it is absorbed in the domestic economy, and how much it ultimately stimulates growth, improves human development outcomes, and reduces poverty. In light of the evidence, some scholars assert that aid plays a pivotal role in promoting economic development in the poorest countries, while others are highly skeptical. Many studies emphasize that aid effectiveness depends crucially on the quality of institutions and policies in the receiving countries. A concern often voiced by skeptics is that aid may not be captured by economic and political elites, Oh. I'm sorry, that aid may be captured by economic and political elites. The fact that many of the countries that receive foreign aid have high levels of corruption invokes fears that aid flows up, end up in the pockets, oh, aid flows end up in the pockets of the ruling politicians and their cronies. The flows there was a noun, not a verb, sorry. This would be consistent with economic theories of rent-seeking in the presence of aid, and resonate with colorful anecdotal evidence about failed development projects and self-interested elites. Yet there is little systematic evidence on diversion of aid. In this paper, we study aid diversion by combining quarterly information on aid disbursements from the World Bank and foreign deposits from the Bank for International Settlements. Okay, so I'm not going to, this is, a lot of this is even over my head, but I just wanted to share some of this. So the main findings, we present the results from our baseline model in Table 2, Controlling for GDP Growth, Country Fixed Effects, and Time Fixed Effects. We find that aid disbursements are strongly associated with increases in haven deposits, which means uh, those tax avoidance havens, but do not vary systematically with non-haven deposits. Specifically, an aid disbursement equivalent to 1% of GDP in a given quarter includes a statistically significant increase in haven deposits of around 3.4%. By contrast, as shown in column two, the analogous effect on non-haven deposits is a statistically insignificant decrease of around 1.5%. So I'm not, I I don't read this whole thing. I don't expect you to. I think it would put you to sleep. Uh, It's just too much. But the, the bottom line is this. What if, what if politicians were voting for foreign aid that ended up in these haven banks, and what if it was coming back to them somehow? Wouldn't that be the perfect way for people to steal the money and, and end it up with in their own pockets or the pockets of their family? So that's, that was kind of my uh, that was just kind of my basic idea when I started thinking about this the other day. and so. I found a couple of articles that are sort of um, apropos to this idea, or my theory, and uh, this one article is Presidential Net Worth Before and After uh, Election to President. So they give three examples. So let's start off with the most current president, uh, Donald Trump. Net worth before was $4.5 billion current net worth 3.5 billion. Now, you know, I don't think these are audited numbers, so I don't think you can go by this exactly, but I'm just doing it in the large in the large picture here. So Trump has actually had a decrease in net worth since he joined. Barack Obama presidential net worth before $3 million. Current net worth $40 million. Well, let's do the math. He had 8 years of 400,000 salary. So that comes to about a little over 3 million. And you know, hey, maybe the guy's a good investor, maybe he bought maybe he bought Apple 20 years ago. Maybe he bought Tesla when it first came out. Maybe he bought Amazon when it first came out. So he went from 3 million to 40 million. Now, here's the good one. Hillary and Bill Clinton, net worth before $480,000. Current net worth 100 million plus. Wow. That's interesting. So one of those things that I thought about was, well, they do do those book deals. So how does that work? So I looked into that a little bit. I didn't look, I really didn't look into anything. I just did a little easy Google search that any of you could do. And I came up with an American Thinker article from from December 9th of 2019. And it says Obama gave Common Core contract to publisher Got a $65 million book deal in return with a question mark. And it says, uh, as far-left Democrats yell about bribery and high crimes, let's turn to their own side of the aisle, starting with the once penniless President Obama, who left public office a very, very rich man. He just bought a Martha's Vineyard mansion for a cool $11.75 million, which is in addition to his Calorama lookout post, his Chicago home, and possibly a Hawaii spread. At some point, you've made enough, but not him. Ostensibly, it's mainly the work of his book deals. No bribery there, right? Well, ahem. Uh-huh. According to Investment Watch, something doesn't look quite right. Obama gave Pearson Publishing $350 million to create Common Core text, and Pearson gave Obama a $65 million book deal in return. And Pearson Publishing was paid for Common Core Penguin Random House Publishing did the Obama book deal, but there is commonality with the two. Penguin Random House was formed in July of 13 upon the completion of a $2.4 billion transaction between Bartlesman and Pearson to merge their respective trade publishing companies, Random House and Penguin Group. Bartlesman and Pearson, the parent companies, owning 53 and 47% respectively. In July 2017, Pearson agreed to sell a 22% stake in the business to Bertelsmann, thereby retaining a 25% holding. That sounds like a classic bribe. You give me this big contract and I'll kick back some to you at a later date, Chicago way. The book cash flow to Obama in 2017. Anyway, you get the idea. The money goes out to foreign aid or book publishing contracts and then it comes back to people in some other fashion. I thought it was fascinating. I had to share it with you. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. Hi, this is Pastor Greg Lusted from Equipping the Saints Radio.
1: Do you want to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Then we invite you to tune into Equipping the Saints to hear the uncompromising preaching and teaching of God's Word on this station. For more information, look us up on the web at www.etsradio.org.
0: We look forward to our time in the Word together.
1: Weeknights at 630, here on KKXX. I am a veteran. I lost both lakes in Vietnam. As America's veterans face challenges, DAV is there.
0: My victory was getting my benefits and a good education.
1: DAV helps veterans of every generation get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran. I didn't want to admit it, but I had PTSD. So veterans can reach victories great and small. My victory was finding help and learning that I wasn't alone. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org.
0: Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. We're wrapping up another hour of fun facts to know and tell, entertainment, humor, well, maybe. I guess that was kind of humorous, the way that that global fund lost $115 million in six months. They probably lost it all in three months, to be honest. Wow. It's almost, you know that old saying, do you know where your children are? How about, do you know where your retirement money is? I would say you probably need to double-check. Give your broker a call. Tell him. Tell them Harold sent you. I'm not a broker. I can say that. Okay. So I couldn't go a whole show without at least giving you a little bit of Egon von Greyer's because I haven't been here for a couple of weeks. I've had to do a replay or two, and I apologize for that. But... This is an article from September 23rd. It's called Dark Years and Fourth Turning. I'm just going to read for a couple minutes, and I got some good news at the end of the show, so you can just kind of relax and go to that other side that we like to talk about here on Business Buzz. So here's Egon. In an ephemeral world, few things survive. I am not talking about species or human beings whose existence on Earth is also transitory. Instead, I am referring to social and financial systems which are now coming to an end. In July 2009, I wrote an article called The Dark Years Are Here. It was reprinted again in September 2018. Here is an extract from my original article. The dark years will be extremely severe for most countries both financially and socially. In many countries in the Western world, there will be a severe depression and it will be the end of the welfare state. Most private and state pension schemes are also likely to collapse. It will be a worldwide depression, but some countries may only have a deep recession. There will be famine, homelessness, and misery resulting in social as well as political unrest. Different type of government leaders and regimes are likely to result from this. How long will the dark years last? There is a book called The Fourth Turning written by Neil Howe. He has identified a pattern that repeats itself every 80 years. The pattern has been extremely accurate in the Anglophile world. We have recently entered the fourth turning, which is the final 20 years of the cycle. According to how we are in the early stages of a 20-year period, now remember this was written in 'o nine. we are in the early stages of a 20-year period of economic and institutional upheaval. This is a period of crisis when the fabric of society will change dramatically. Previous fourth turnings have been the American Revolution, Great Depression, and World War II. According to Howe, the crisis will be substantially worse before it is over, and it will last for another 20 years. All of this is not good news, and we hope that we and Howe are wrong regarding the severity and length of this crisis. But we fear that we are both right. We must stress again that never previously has the whole world entered a downturn simultaneously in such a fragile state, both financially and economically, which is dark. Which is why the dark years are likely to be so devastating and long-lasting. So that's an interesting book. I've never read it. It's called The Fourth Turning, and it was published uh, around 08 or something. So now he says, now Egon says in this current article, coronavirus, a catalyst. As I have stated previously, coronavirus, which started in early 2020, is not the reason for the current downturn. It was just a catalyst. For some reason, when cycles are about to accelerate hard down, the trigger seems to be the worst possible. Although I have often talked about disease as one potential catalyst, I did not expect it to come now and cause a total lockdown of parts of the economy and society in so many countries. When you are approaching the end of a financial era or cycle, it is very difficult to predict exactly how it will all end. Very few people understand that we are now living on borrowed time. There is absolutely no doubt that we are now at the end of the end and of a major cycle, whether that takes eight years as Hal predicts or it all happens much faster, is totally irrelevant. And he says the unprepared could lose everything. The risk is here now, and if you don't prepare for this, you are not just likely to lose whatever wealth you have, but also your job, pension, or Social Security. So uh, I would encourage you to go to goldswitzerland.com and read Egon von Greyer's. He's got a whole list of things you can read. He's got an interview with a a woman named Lynette Zhang that I actually like. I didn't listen to the interview, but I saw that it's on his website. So if you go to goldswitzerland.com you can read his stuff and uh, so far he's been pretty he's been pretty on point for the last few years that I've been reading him regularly. I will say real quickly, uh, if anybody's tuned into Business Buzz to hear something about gold and silver, I will say this. They've managed to try to hammer it down, but it's being pretty resilient. The gold silver ratio dropped all the way to 70 from, uh, it used it was about 120 back in March, I think, which is the all time high in the history of the world. It dropped down to 70 when silver popped up to just under $30 an ounce a few weeks ago. Now things are kind of just slowing down, settling down. The gold silver ratio is back to 82 as of this morning. Uh, I honestly feel this is an excellent time to buy a little more silver, but that's up to you. I'm not a financial advisor. I'm just telling you what what I think is a smart thing to do, but I'm not even saying I'd do it. I'm just saying I think you should do it. And I'm not a financial advisor. It's not financial advice. So don't cry to me when your global portfolio goes to zero. Oh, wait, I'm the one who told you it would. Okay. Call your broker, ask him about that. Ask him what you own. See how great of an answer you get. It may not be what you what you hoped for. Okay, so for the last few minutes of the show, I'm glad you stuck with me this long. Don't fall asleep if you're driving. I'm going to share another part of my favorite book, which is A Course in Miracles. For those of you who don't like Eastern religion, please Please turn me off. And I'm just going to go right to the start. The very beginning, The Meaning of Miracles, Chapter 1, Part 1, Principles of Miracles. So this is really interesting because when I first bought this book, this is, of course, where I started. And the whole time I read all these, it was like, well, that was interesting, but I didn't know what it was talking about. And so whenever I try to help somebody with Course in Miracles or someone who's interested in reading or starting or learning about it, I like to make sure to mention that you've got to know what a miracle means before you even start reading it, or else you'll, you'll end up reading it twice because you'll have to go back once you figure that out. And I finally figured it out after many, many readings, many, many, uh, many, many listening to videos, listening to people, teachers talking about it. It finally occurred to me what a miracle is, and it's very simple. A miracle is when you shift your mind from the everyday, daily, I call the wrong mind, and you shift it to the other mind, which is the mind that observes your thoughts. So when you step back from your thoughts and watch your thoughts go by, one way you can do it, Eckhart Tolle's big on this, one way you can do it is say to yourself, I wonder what my next thought will be. And you'll get that little half second of blankness. Okay, that blankness, and when you're observing your thoughts, because the thoughts will never stop. They just keep coming like a, like a floats in a parade or leaves on a stream. They just keep coming. The secret is not to try to stop them. The secret is to just observe them. Observe them as an observer. That is what this book calls the miracle. So it's a very simple thing. It's, it takes forever to really master all this, and I don't claim to have mastered anything. I'm a total amateur at this whole book, but I love it and it makes me feel good. And the the book even says the goal of the book is peace of mind. The goal isn't to make you a, you know, a shining star guru and, uh, you know, a disciple to, or, you know, a a person, a, a Messiah to all these people. That's not the goal of the book. The goal of the book is peace of mind. So I'm going to read some of these principles of miracles, and they're numbered. One, there is no order of difficulty in miracles. One is not harder or bigger than another. They are all the same. All expressions of love are maximal. So just in that one short three-sentence deal or four-sentence deal, we already learn a new, we already learn a new definition in this book. Love equals a miracle. So now that's another thing about this book. It's written very, very uh, interestingly. Okay, number two, miracles as such do not matter. The only thing that matters is their source, which is far beyond evaluation. So I'm just giving you my little, sh- uh, my little take on each one of these. Now that I've read this book for ten years and I still don't know it all, don't understand it half the time. So in my opinion, what that is saying is. The only thing that matters is their source, which means their source is just, is basically what he means in here is like God. But God is not a, is not an object. It's not a person. It's not a man in a white robe. It's just God, which is far beyond evaluation. So right there, it's telling us we're not going to learn anything about that in this book. Okay. Number three, miracles occur naturally as expressions of love. The real miracle is the love that inspires them. In this sense, everything that comes from love is a miracle. Okay, number four, all miracles mean life and God is the giver of life. His voice will direct you very specifically. You will be told all you need to know. So in number four, that comes down to the whole thing about people who realize that if they don't try to think all day and just let things unfold as they may without directing it yourself. That's where number four comes in. It says, you will be told all you need to know. So you really don't need to think much at all. Okay, number five, miracles are habits and should be involuntary. They should not be under conscious control. Consciously selected miracles can be misguided. So to me, as an amateur reading this book, the fact that their habits and should be involuntary; they should not be c- under conscious control. You shouldn't direct any miracles into any certain direction. I guess you should just uh, let them try to happen involuntarily. And I kind—I kind of, you know, after ten years of working with this book, it's actually been twelve, but I say ten because it's—it's easier that way. In ten years of working with this book, I still have to remind myself to get into that miracle mode of thinking, that that observing mind mode. You need to get there, and you won't get there unless you remind yourself to do it. I'll put a little bright colored sticker on the monitor of my computer, and for the first day or two of that, the different color will tell me, hey, snap out of it. Get into get into that other mode. But then after a couple of days, that color dot becomes normal, and, I, and it doesn't do any good anymore. So You have to remember to keep changing your color. Here's a good one. I really like this one. Number six, miracles are natural. When they do not occur, something has gone wrong. So the miracle here, if you get out of that mode of thinking that the miracle means, uh, you know, uh, the rain comes when the drought, you know, the drought finally ended and the rain came after you prayed. That's not the miracle. XXX Paradise K280 GL Chico and K283 AR Chico Yuba City Marysville
1: Breaking news this hour from townhall.com I'm Keith Peters President Trump has instructed aides to stop negotiating on another round of COVID-19 relief until after the election Mr Trump tweets that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is not negotiating in good faith and says he's asked Senate majority leader Mitch McConnell to direct all his focus before the election into confirming his U.S. Supreme Court nominee, Amy Coney Barrett. Speaking to reporters, McConnell was asked why President Trump abandoned talks on COVID-19 relief until after the election. Well, I think his view was that they were not going to produce a result and that we needed to concentrate on what's achievable.
0: Could you support him, his decision? Uh,
1: yeah. Mr. Trump tweeted that, quote, after I win, we will pass a major stimulus bill that focuses on hardworking Americans and small business. Hurricane Delta has become a dangerous Category 4 storm in the Gulf of Mexico with winds of over 130 miles an hour. Daniel Brown, a specialist with the National Hurricane Center, says forecasters aren't sure where Hurricane Delta will head next when it passes into the Gulf of Mexico.
0: We're seeing... Uh, an increasing risk of uh, a life-threatening storm surge, uh, damaging winds, and flooding rains over portions of the north-central Gulf Coast, southern U.S., as we get toward later in the week. Uh, the details and timing of when it's going to make landfall and where is uh, too soon to tell, but residents along the northern Gulf Coast should be uh, making sure they have their hurricane plan in place.
1: Alabama Governor Kay Ivey and Louisiana Governor John Bel Edwards on Tuesday signed a state of emergency for their states that would let officials seek federal aid more quickly if needed later. Beach communities on the Alabama coast are still clearing away the damage from Hurricane Sally, which made landfall at Gulf Shores on September 16th as they warn people to be ready for Hurricane Delta. On Wall Street, the Dow down by 375 points. The Nasdaq dropped 177. More on these stories at townhall.com. This is Dinesh D'Souza. My latest film, Trump Card, is an expose of the socialism, corruption, and gangsterism that defines the modern Democratic Party. My film reveals what's unique about modern socialism, who's behind it, why it's evil, and how we can stop it. Order your DVD and video on demand today at WatchTrumpCard.com. Be among the first to see my movie, Trump Card, exclusively at WatchTrumpCard.com. That's WatchTrumpCard.com. Here's the townhall.com
0: business brief. Stocks dropped on Wall Street after President Trump ordered aides to stop negotiating with Democrats over another round of aid for the economy until after the election. The president said House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was not negotiating in good faith. Investors had been clamoring for more stimulus. U.S. employers advertised for slightly fewer jobs in August, but hiring was up during the month. The Labor Department says job postings dipped to $6.49 million, down from $6.70 million in July. Hiring edged up to $5.92 million. That's above the $5.90 million in July. The Dow lost 375 points to finish at 27,772. The Nasdaq off 177 to 11154 The S&P dropped 47 to 3360 New York oil gaining 94
1: cents to $40.17 a barrel. With business, I'm John Scott. News and analysis at townhall.com. I'm Keith Peters.
0: During these trying times, our troops need our help more than ever